we praise you. Uh, we praise you for your name. We praise you for the authority and power uh, that are vested in who you are and what you have done and are doing in the world. Father, we pray uh, that you would allow that power, the power of the gospel, to, to work itself out in our lives um, with the things that we struggle with and the situations we're in, the relationships that we're a part of. Um, we pray that you would bring clarity and healing um, and power and beauty, Father, uh, that as we worship you, that, that we would be transformed into your image. We pray, Father, this morning, uh, as we do every Sunday, that your spirit would speak to us, um, that, that you would just speak a fresh word to us, uh, and that by hearing that and responding in obedience, we would be transformed, we'd be brought closer to you, um, to your heart, uh, and to your your mission and plan of redemption in the world around us, Father. We love you. We ask that you to be with us this morning. It's your sons we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I am very happy to welcome a guest uh, to be with us and to preach this morning. Uh, his name is Dr. Ben Blackwell. He is a professor at Houston Baptist University. Uh, he has taught me uh, multiple times, one of my favorite professors at Houston Baptist. And he is to blame for a lot of what I think and believe. <laughs> so if you have problems, you can take up with him. Uh, but would you please help me welcome Dr. Ben Blackwell? Stand here, I guess, right? Michael attests that my office I have a standing desk and like the it comes up to here so I can uh, I loosen it. Drop that off. Um, big fan of standing up every once in a while having a anyhow I'm very glad to be with y'all this morning. I'm only uh, lived here in Sugarland for about a year and a half now, so uh, still finding my way around different places and all that. Uh, I had the pleasure before that to live in England for the past five years before, and uh, we lived in uh, northeast England, so if you, you know, in my mind, England is London, and where we lived was nothing like London, right? So London's big, sprawling metropolis, very multicultural. Uh, where we lived was in Durham, which is about halfway between uh, Durham or London and uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, and so we lived in what was, I guess, similar to West Virginia. Uh, it's the coal mining territory. Uh, hillbillies is what, the, you know, they're the hillbillies of, of England. Um, and so uh, up where we lived was a town called Beamish. And actually what it was is a reconstructed town uh, set in about 1910. And so you walk in, you see everything, you know, that would be from around the turn of the century. Uh, and, you know, like I said, the main industry of where we lived up there was uh, coal mining. And so part of going into uh, Beamish was you got to go in an old coal mine. <clears throat> and so you walk in the shaft. Now, there are different ways that, you know, different kinds of shafts. So some, you'd have to take elevators down and stuff. But this one just went into a hill. And so you walked about 100 feet down into the hill. But the problem was is the uh, tunnel was only about four feet tall, right? So everybody had to have their helmets on. You're walking down this thing. Uh, and slowly, obviously, it gets darker and darker away from you get from the area, and you get to where they start to have the, the seams where they're actually digging out stuff, right? Because that's a, a track, a, a, a trolley or whatever. Um, and you get in there, and they turn off all the lights. And it's, you know, just pitch black in there. And they turn on one little small lamp. Now, it's not a, a normal lamp because they couldn't have a burning flame in there uh, because the coal, right, it would burn, uh, start a fire. So they had what are called carbide lamps. But... Essentially, it's about the light of a single candle burning. 
And that's what you had to work by. Everybody had one lamp that they worked with uh, there. And I, you know, it's just hard to imagine, you know, just can you imagine working eight to 10 hours a day by one single uh, candlelight? Uh, but it's even more uh, surprising or different as they told us about the different working conditions. Um, in this cave, or, and this is normal for most mines, is that, uh, you know, the coal is either, some places have a lot of coal and then other places have just small seams, or what they call. And so they would draw lots to see who uh, got the better seam. And so if you got the good lot, right, your seam was actually about four feet tall. And so you could work on your knees and, you know, like you do normal work. Uh, there was a smaller seam that was about two or three feet. And then there were some seams that were only 18 inches, right? So you uh, would work that for a couple weeks before they would shift over to the other thing. And so not only are you working by a candlelight, right, for eight to ten hours a day, uh, but if you drew that lot, right, you're lying on your back, right, because you don't want to dig out a bunch of rock because you only get paid for the coal that you put out. You're lying on your back for 18 inches a day, right, except for the breaks and all that kind of stuff. Can you imagine that? Imagine working in the darkness, uh, the compressed area, um, you know, obviously not the best working conditions. Um, but I wonder, right, uh, can you imagine um, that kind of a uh, stress, the darkness? And it makes me think that some of you in here actually can imagine that kind of darkness. Uh, we live in a world that's full of suffering. Uh, and the church as a whole doesn't usually do uh, really well with people expressing their suffering. Uh, we come here to uh, celebrate, right? I mean, we do celebrate the life of Christ. Uh, but there's another side of life as well. It's the, the path of suffering that many of us trod. And um, as we uh, think about that darkness, being in the cave, we're going to read uh, or tell, explore uh, uh, the prayer of someone who was in a cave. Uh, right? It's like this cave that we see that these coal miners were in. Um, and his problems are maybe not the problems you have but maybe the problems of a failed marriage or a chronic sickness that doesn't go away, right? These are problems that are not ones that we just get over in a week or two. Uh, they're problems that, that we face day in and day out. Um, and so we're going to explore the prayers of uh, David. In fact, he wrote a prayer, it says specifically in Psalm 42, when he was in a cave. Right, and so we're going to talk about that. Uh, and it's important to know, right, when we think about being in the cave, uh, that this is where God does some of his most mysterious work. Right, so we're going to think about that today. So uh, before uh, we talk about David's prayer in Psalm 142, uh, it's going to be important to kind of explain the story of why David was even in the cave in the first place. And what does it mean? Why did he uh, pray this prayer? And so let's start uh, with David's story. Now, 1 Samuel is where um, that records David's uh, rise to the king, or at least to the, the path there. And so uh, we're not, the whole book of 1 Samuel. So you're not going to get a whole sermon on 1 Samuel. Thank you. <laughs> you're right. uh, but uh, we're going to start there. And so uh, David, uh, as you'll know, was the second king uh, of Israel, and Saul was there, and um, 
Saul had uh, displeased God, and so God said that he wasn't going to um, have Saul as the king anymore. And so through Samuel, the prophet, uh, we have God uh, choosing David, and he becomes the anointed king, right? And so as we all know, or hopefully know the story about Jesse and his sons and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so uh, David has this kind of uh, rise to power there. He gets, becomes favored in Saul's court. And then we have the story of David and Goliath, right? So David defeats this uh, uh, pagan enemy, and so then he gets elevated to be a general, right? I mean, the exact kind of uh, rise to power that you would expect for someone that is going to be a king. The problem is, is that Saul uh, caught on to that uh, uh, this David guy was kind of challenging his power, uh, and not necessarily directly, but... Uh, people began to like David more than they liked Saul. And so that's a big no-no if your boss uh, uh, thinks other people like them better than you. And so um, uh, he essentially fires David, right? He starts to, uh, he runs him off from there, so David loses his job, right? And so uh, loses his job and his income and his security, all those kind of things that uh, he had worked towards. Right? And not only did he lose his job, uh, David lost uh, his, his wife. Uh, his wife, Michael, was uh, Saul's daughter. And so when uh, Saul starts pursuing David, right, he loses his family. Because as he flees uh, Saul, who is trying to kill him, uh, he can't stay with his wife, obviously, uh, who doesn't go on the run with him. And then not only that, uh, David loses his um, best friend, Jonathan, right? So not only is um, his wife uh, Saul's daughter, his best friend is Jonathan, Saul's son. And so Jonathan, again, who remained faithful to David, but also remained with his father, uh, when uh, David has to flee uh, from Saul, right, he loses all these things, right? Now, if it was a country song, right, he would have lost his dog, too. So, um, right, but, it, you know, it's a joke, right? But if we think about it, I mean, some of you, right, I mean, in economy have lost your job, right? I mean, we've lost family members. Um, you know, you have relationships with people that are broken. Uh, you have family that are, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, chronic illnesses, right? These, these are deep and... Uh, painful things, right? And we don't escape them as Christians. <clears throat> and David, obviously, as a believer, uh, didn't escape these things as well. In fact, it's important to remember that uh, God had chosen him to be king over Israel, right? And he had this ascendancy. It looked like he was heading towards what God had chosen for him, and then everything came down to nothing, right? And, it's, and it actually took 14 years from the time that Samuel anointed him to be king over Israel the time that he actually took over as king, right? 14 years. Uh, now, all of that wasn't uh, lost during this time, right? He wasn't fleeing from Saul the whole time. Uh, but sometimes God's vision for our life takes quite a long time uh, to work out. A lot of pain and suffering that we'll go through that might actually take a long time. <clears throat> it's this point where David is fleeing from Samuel. Uh, and so 1 Samuel 22 uh, one, it says that David left Gath. Uh, he had gone actually to the Philistines, uh, fleeing to Saul, and then had to flee from them as well. And it says he left Gath, who are the Philip, uh, Philistines there, 
and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. So we don't know if this is the cave that he wrote uh, this psalm from, this prayer from, uh, because he shows up in other caves as well. Uh, but he's there in the cave, right? And so that's about the time when we pick up uh, with his prayer in Psalm 142. And uh, to, as an example of this, uh, of believers walking through or in this cave, um, uh, about a month ago, uh, I went to San Antonio. Our church, I go to the Sugarland Vineyard Church. <clears throat> we went to uh, San Antonio to help a church that had just been started two or three years ago. Actually, another uh, HBU uh, graduate that is uh, uh, the pastor there. And uh, he, uh, we, I met a couple there, and, and our job was to help encourage and, and pray for people. And this couple, uh, it was just one of these radical transformations. Uh, both of them were unbelievers. Uh, they were weeks away from divorce. I mean, they were, one was living here in San Antonio, and the other had moved back home to California. Um, you know, just life was in shambles. And uh, through the husband meeting uh, this uh, pastor and the church there had come to faith, and his wife had come to faith, and God had restored their relationship. In fact, when I was sitting uh, before, we had a little worship service like this, and they were kind of snuggled up with one another. I thought they were newlyweds, right, because they were so kind of uh, cuddled up with one another. Uh, it was just a sign that God um, had come in power and transformed their lives. And, um, but, right, that doesn't mean that becoming a Christian leads you to the happily ever after fairy tale. Um, she had a chronic medical condition that led to migraines, and they were actually in the midst of going through a bankruptcy. And so their wages were being garnished um, to uh, pay off their debts, right? They were in the cave. They're in the cave, right? And it, that bankruptcy, right, doesn't go away overnight. Uh, probably years that they're going to be having to struggle through that. Uh, and so God does bring life and transformation, but he also leads us through uh, times of suffering as well. And it's those kinds of times, right, that the psalm... Uh, like we have in Psalm 1 and 42, is uh, important to remember. Uh, now, I don't preach very often about Psalms because it's, one, I, I'm not a poetry kind of person, so I, I have a, a trouble really thinking about poetry. But the other thing is if you preach through a Psalm, I don't know, like if you take a bar of poem and you analyze it and dissect it, then you, you've actually lost the poem, right? And so uh, we're going to read it, and I'm going to have a few kind of high points about it to help us think about what are the things that uh, David's saying. Uh, but we're going to let the psalm itself kind of soak into us. Um, and so uh, let's read Psalm 142. So at the top there, actually the little italicized language there at the top uh, is in the original Hebrew there. And so it says, A baskel of David which we don't really know what that is, probably some kind of um, musical term, <clears throat> some kind of prayer or musical psalm. It says when he was in a cave, a prayer. So let's read his prayer. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint, within me. It is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. 
Look and see, no one is at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of goodness to me. Because of your goodness to me. So a couple of things about this psalm. Two, three things. Uh, one of the uh, primary things we see about it is the, David's honesty to God about his reality of suffering. Uh, again, I think we're uh, good at church settings a lot of time. You know, you walk in, how you doing? I'm fine, I'm good. Um, you know, rarely are, you know, in handshake greetings, it would be kind of awkward anyway, right? I mean, when somebody actually says, my life sucks, you know, you're like, whoa, you know, just kind of walk away. It's like, you know, but there are times, right, that we need to, uh, in a church, have that time for honesty with one another. But, but even more than honesty with one another, we need to have that honesty with God, right? In fact, in verse 2, it says, uh, David lays out his complaint to God, right? I think a lot of times... Uh, I don't know a lot of times. We all have different personalities, but sometimes we don't want to be honest and, and feel like we're complaining to God. Uh, but sometimes life sucks, right? And we are just need to be honest about that in our prayer, right? Now, I think a lot of us, uh, when we suffer, right, we obviously want God to come and fix that, and so we're asking for him to uh, come fix things. Uh, but there's a, there's a sense to where David is able to think about and, and walk through uh, his suffering here uh, in honesty before God about the reality of this suffering. And so what does he talk about? He talks about um, uh, his trouble or his spirit growing faint, uh, his loneliness, right? His trouble from others, his desperate need, right? These are all uh, descriptions that actually would fit uh, our situations as well when we're walking in the cave. So that's one thing, his honesty about his problems. But he also remains dependent upon God, right? He doesn't just complain to God uh, or to his friends, but he also uh, brings uh, his dependence before God. He says, you know, in the midst of my trouble, you are my refuge. You're the one that I trust. You're my portion in the land of living. In verse 5 it says there. And so in the midst of our suffering, it's those times actually... Uh, C.S. Lewis says that shows our, our humanness, our createdness even more, right? It's our separation from God. It, it reveals our separation from God because if God is the one who is the source of life, uh, when we face suffering, uh, that's the experience of death in our lives in some ways, right? And so it, seeks, it forces us to depend even more on God who is our, the source of our life. And so the last thing here particularly is that uh, it's not a deistic view of God that uh, David has. Now, what is a deistic view of God? Um, a deist believes that God's the cosmic watchmaker, right? He created the world and he never does anything in it. But David actually has a hope for the future that God is going to come and change things. Now he doesn't explain that uh, fully here, but he does say there in the last verse that... Um, you know, set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. And then the righteous will gather about me 
because of your goodness to me. And so in some ways, he's pointing towards that goal to which God had set him for in the first place, right? To be king and to have righteous counselors around him uh, as the ruler of Israel. And so he has a hope for God's action. Or what we might call an eschatology, right? That's a big fancy uh, word. The word eschatology just means the study of end things, right? Well, eschatology is the whole idea that things are broken now, but God is going to come in the future and fix things. And so David has a hope. Uh, he has an expectation that God is going to work tangibly in the world uh, through this. <clears throat> All right, so before we conclude uh, with this, uh, now Mike told me he usually preaches for about an hour. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. All right. So you'll get a treat today. I'll I'll be much shorter. Uh, I've been trying to tell him, you know, long-windedness, you know, drunk, you know. <laughs> Somebody told me that he was a really good preacher, and so that's always bad because then you have these high expectations. The guest preachers are even better. And all. <laughs> so. But uh, as we uh, think about this story of David and his prayer, um, there's a, a view of thinking about God's work in the world that uh, someone passed on to me when I was in college. And it's been very formative for me uh, to think about uh, how God works. And David's life where he has this uh, vision for becoming king, right? A vision that God had given him. Uh, but he also has this fall uh, where everything, right, his life falls apart. And, and the way that this, uh, this speaker talked about it, he said that there's a three-step process that we see over and over in the Bible. And what he would call a birth of a vision, a death of a vision, and then a supernatural fulfillment. So let, let's take some examples from the Old Testament and think about how God works this out. So we have the birth of the vision. Uh, this is where God uh, gives a promise or a vision to someone about what the future is going to be like. And so if we start with Abraham, for instance, God gave him a vision that he was going to be the father of many nations. Now, at the time, Abraham didn't have any children at all, right? So that was a promise that uh, God was going to do something in the future. Um, And so uh, Abraham leaves Mesopotamia and comes down into Palestine or Canaan, uh, and he goes along for several years, and uh, he still has no children, right? And so how do you become a father of many nations or have a great, excuse me, a great nation uh, without any children, and so that's the whole uh, problem with uh, Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, but God comes in, at, and and so this um, infertility of Abraham and his uh, wife Sarah uh, becomes the death of a vision. They can't see beyond their own circumstances, right, to see forward to the way God is going to fulfill His promises. Uh, and so that's when they uh, mess up, right, by trying to pursue God's promises or their vision uh, in a different way, right? But then eventually God comes around and supernaturally fulfills his promise, right? They have uh, Isaac, their son, uh, when they were, you know, in their late 90s, right? That's obviously a supernatural fulfillment of God's vision. Okay, so birth of a vision, death of a vision, supernatural fulfillment. Uh, let's think uh, Moses, or yeah, Moses, right? In Egypt, right? God comes to Moses, says, I'm going to have you lead my people out of Egypt, right? And so he uh, goes to Pharaoh, and what does Pharaoh say? Yeah, yeah, go on. We'll let you go. No? Right, no, it's the exact opposite. He says, uh, quit, you know, quit your complaining. Uh, I'm going to make you work harder, right, instead of easier. 
Uh, and so that whole vision of uh, things became much worse even than what they were before, right? And they couldn't see beyond that, that suffering. But through the plagues, right, and the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea, God supernaturally fulfills his purpose for his people. And then we come to David's life, right? It's the same kind of thing. He gives the birth of a vision, right? This vision is for a future of what God's going to do in your life. Uh, you're going to be a king over Israel, right? But then for 14 years, uh, David struggles, uh, and he's, you know, at certain points, uh, you know, experiencing true, what I would think is depression, right? The way he talks about the kind of language today that we think of depression, right? That you're struggling for years to see how God is going to work. Now, we don't have that. It's, it's a supernatural fulfillment, but it's not the supernatural, wow, miraculous, all that kind of stuff that it could only happen through a miracle uh, like we had with Abraham and Moses. Sometimes God's supernatural fulfillment works through what we might think are everyday circumstances. Um, and so it's important there, right? And so it's, but it's in the middle of this uh, death of a vision, right, when he's struggling for 14 years that he writes this song. And I'll tell a little bit of my own story here. Um, when uh, I went to seminary in, um, in Dallas, and my wife uh, majored in French at, in college, and so when we got married, our whole expectations were that we were going to go do missions in France, actually. There's, uh, church attendance is only about 1% there, uh, and so secularism has just you know, ravaged the church in France. And so uh, we really felt the need for them the French people and uh, you know calling my wife felt so she had a French major in college and so we go through seminary I've been married five or six years <clears throat> and when I get out of seminary we start the process of applying with a mission agency uh, that sends you know people to France um, and so it's a months long process because they don't want to spend a lot of money helping you learn the language and all that kind of stuff uh, transition and so we're in the midst of that process you know, working through it just fine. Uh, and my wife and I actually go to Paris for uh, 10 days to uh, visit the mission team there. And when she got home, she's just like, I just don't think we need to go. Right? The whole thing just kind of fell apart for us in that way. And obviously, you don't go and move internationally and do very difficult work if both of you aren't on the same page about it. Um, and so we took a step back and said, Well, what are we going to do with our lives then? And, uh, so I, I started to apply for church ministry, and um, we particularly wanted to move outside the Bible Belt, and so we were in Dallas and looking like in the Pacific Northwest and New England, and for months I'm applying to churches, <clears throat> and nothing at all, right? I mean, the only kind of letter I got back was rejection letters, right? And for, you know, for a while, you know, for a month or so, you can kind of put up with that, and you're like, that just happens, and we'll just wait on God to work, but, you know, six, seven, eight months long right you're applying for things uh it gets old and you begin to question you know is this what i'm even supposed to do um i even got a rejection letter from a church that I didn't even apply to so <laughs> like, i mean i guess they got off a job board or something i don't know but it was you know just a low point right i mean and and it's again it's not one of these things that goes away overnight right uh, there are problems that we face that are long-term, uh, you know, that make, uh, you know, that can lead us down into the depths of despair. 
And eventually my wife uh, asked me one day, well, what do you want to do with your life, right? Obviously this isn't working. Um, and I was fortunate. I had a job. I did accounting my whole way through seminary, and so I at least had a job all the way through, but um, had no, you know, no vision for that, right? I definitely knew I didn't want to be an accountant, but um, <clears throat> need to be in ministry. And so within a matter of months, well, she asked me what I want to do with my life, and I uh, thought, well, you know, I've always had an idea of getting a Ph.D., and I won't tell the course of events, but, you know, there are plenty of people, in fact, people here in your church that are, are planning assiduously for uh, seeking a Ph.D., uh, you know, they're months in advance preparing ideas and topics and uh, language studies and all that kind of stuff. Um, for me, in a matter of months, um, I had to come up with a topic, uh, apply to schools in England to, to make the deadlines, um, and... I got into the best university that I would want to go to. Uh, I got, you know, what I think is one of the best uh, supervisors in the in England for the topic I was looking at, and they gave me a full ride. <clears throat> and that whole thing to me is nothing less than supernatural. Uh, it was, you know, just, you know, and, and so I had banged my head on the door for, you know, two years almost from uh, the time of uh, leaving seminary to uh, when that uh, acceptance letter and process happened. And it was a hard time, right? You questioned, uh, God, what am I doing? Do you want me to do something else? Uh, and that was in the job sphere, right? There are other things that with health problems or family problems, you don't fix those by getting another job, right? You had to wait on God to, uh, to either resolve those or we wait until the return of Christ uh, and, and our own death before God's life is poured out in those areas. And, <clears throat> Uh, but we all face these real struggles. And so what do you do when you're in the cave? Right? I was in the cave. I wasn't raised in a liturgical tradition or tradition that uh, uses, uh, does uh, much in the way of praying or seeking the Bible for the Psalms. Uh, but the, the Bible uh, is full of these prayers of people who are suffering. In fact, the most prominent psalms, right, there are 150 psalms in our Bible. Uh, the most numerous psalms, the, the, whatever, the most repeated number of psalms, whatever, are what we call lament psalms. And this is what we, Psalm 142 is a lament psalm. It's where people are expressing their suffering before God. <coughs> and in fact, so we're, it's, uh, if you are going through this time of suffering, right, I want to encourage you to return to these lament psalms because... Uh, we have a hope for a future that God acts, uh, but also we need these psalms, right? These numerous psalms to help shepherd us through that death of a vision or that time of suffering, that time in a cave that we all face. Um, <clears throat> right? And we need to remember that God does some of his most most mysterious work in the, in the cave. Uh, we don't know why God leads us into these caves. Sometimes it's things that we've done on our own, right? We cause our own self-financial troubles or something. Uh, a lot of times there are things that life uh, brings our way. We don't know why God lets us do that, but we know that he does his most mysterious work in the cave. And let's not forget that uh, this story of birth of a vision, death of vision, supernatural fulfillment, actually it's in uh, the experience of, of God's own son, Jesus Christ. Right? God brought Christ to the earth 
uh, to show us what the Messiah is. And the first half of the Gospels is all about Jesus uh, showing his divine power, right? The miracles um, and bringing the kingdom of God to earth. Uh, but obviously we know in his own story that he experienced, you know, the true death of a vision, right? Torture, uh, death on a cross. And where did they put him? They put him in a cave. And, it, and it's the cave where God does his most mysterious work. He brings life to dead things. And so uh, if you're living in the cave, it may be a, a long time, but we also know that we have a God who brings life out of death. And so uh, as you uh, walk through these days of trouble, uh, I encourage you uh, to seek uh, the, the life of Christ and the consolation of God. And remember, actually, what psalm did Jesus pray when he was on the cross? Psalm 22, a lament psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so it's a longer psalm than uh, Psalm 142, but it follows the same pattern. A righteous man is suffering, and he has a hope, and he expresses that hope that eventually he'll be vindicated, and God will show his life through him. And that's what happened in Christ's experience. And that's why Christ prays the lament psalms. There's hope in the midst of suffering. There's hope in the midst of Jesus dying on the cross uh, for the life to come in these most dark situations that we face. And so let's uh, pray this prayer again. I'm going to read Psalm 142. As you think about your own circumstance, uh, make this your own prayer, and I'll conclude with that. Let's pray. This is our psalm or prayer of lament. When we're sitting in the cave, I cry aloud to you, Lord. I lift up my voice to you for mercy. I pour out my complaint before you, God. Before you, I tell you all my trouble. My spirit grows faint within me. But it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge, and no one cares for my life. So I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me. For they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness for me. So our gracious Father, uh, there are many of us here who are experiencing death. They're here in the cave. The darkness, the oppression. But we know that you bring life to the dead through your Son, who was in the cave, whom you raised from the dead by your spirit. We pray for your strength here in our suffering. We pray for you to rescue us from these things. But if you choose not to rescue us quickly, 
we will still wait and hope for you as David did for those 14 years. We will wait and hope and we will look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So we pray these things to you, Father, by your Son and through your Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll now participate in communion. Uh, it's the central act of our worship each week as we gather together uh, and we come and remember the sacrifice.